This podcast is a ministry of Christian Life Center in Berwyn, Illinois. Our goal is to create a real faith for the real world, and we hope this helps you grow. For more information at Christian Life Center, visit us at our website, www.berwynag.org. Thank you. Hey, if you have your Bible, turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're talking this year about pursuing the Lord, and so uh, this, really, this chapter that we're dealing with tonight is, uh, has to do with pursuing the Lord in purity, and uh, it's a challenging passage of Scripture, or basic, or challenging, depends on how you look at it. The lack of earthly participation in the heavenly realm, the lack of pursuing after the, the, the things of God is probably what hinders us, and you know, sometimes it affects our, the joy, like uh, Jimmy was praying about there, or sometimes it affects our strength spiritually, how much we put into it. You get out of it what you put into it, that's what they say, right? So, um, so but God wanting to do a more than a resolution, he's wanting to make a revolution in, on the inside of us. And we turn ourselves over to the divine power of God. So, First uh, Thessalonians chapter 4. Finally, brothers, we instructed you on how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, for you know that what instructions... We gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It's God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins, as we have already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Um, therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. Father, would you guide us into this word, Lord, and show us what's here, Lord. Show us the more that's there than we already know, Father. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul turns our understanding of life completely on its head when he uh, speaks to the Thessalonians here, and he tells them that the purpose of life is to live in order to please God. In our society, we live to please ourselves, or maybe we might be living to please someone else, but in, in the divine kingdom pursuit, if you're living in pursuit of the kingdom of God, you're living in pursuit of pleasing God. So there's this effort within us to find a way to please God. And the Apostle Paul clearly says here, he's already told them all about this before, that this is a repeat. This, you've heard this message before, he's saying. You may even have the podcast or the, you know, the, the download of this thing already on your, your phone. He says, we instructed you on how to live in order to please God as, in fact, you are living. So he's repeating his command to them but he's repeating that for a purpose. Why do we repeat what we already know? That's the mother of learning. Repetition is the mother of learning. 
and we repeat what we already know because sometimes what we know erodes in light of the, of the, of the world that we live in. And so you may know what a really good cup of coffee tastes like, and you may say, that's all I'm going to drink for the rest of my life, but you start hanging around a bunch of people who don't know coffee, and after a while, you're drinking junk coffee with them, because you want to be with them, right? Just their desire, your desire to be with them, is, it, it just kind of pulled you that direction. Your standard eroded based upon some other thing that you allowed to be the driving force in your life. And so Paul knows this, and so he's speaking to the Thessalonians with the, with the idea that, I think here he's speaking, with the idea that something has begun to erode their standard. And, and the, the purpose of this is to reestablish the standard and the principle of what, what life is about. Life is about living for Jesus. When I, back when I first became a Christian, way back in the 70s, <coughs> there was a nationwide campaign called the Jesus First Campaign. Anybody been saved long enough to remember the Jesus First Campaign? Huh? A couple, yeah. Jesus First. And it was about putting Jesus first. You know, a most basic, and they had pins and bumper stickers and... And people were driving around, and they were putting Jesus first. You know, that was the whole thing. The most basic message of the gospel is to put Jesus first, and yet, at the same time, uh, here is this, this nationwide ministry that's reminding everyone to put Jesus first. And in so doing, he's setting a standard. So you're asking yourself, the same thing happened with that WWJD, what would Jesus do? That was written by a guy, a book, written by a guy who just had that idea, and the book actually was horrible, never sold. No one ever read the book for a long time. It was just, and some publisher found it, and he liked it, so he republished it decades later, and it took off. What would Jesus do? And the pretty bracelets and bumper stickers and all kinds of stuff, you know. And it's all to bring back, bring us back to the standard that God sets. Paul set, brings them back and says, life, you, I want you to live, we've instructed you to live in an order to please God. That your purpose is to live in order to please God. So how was your day today? Good day, a bad day? You know? How do we base that? Well, we could base it on how we feel right now. I feel good, you know. I had a pretty good day this, uh, yesterday and feeling pretty good, still living on the high of the doctor calling my wife and saying, your husband is 100% cancer-free. <laughs> now, that's a good day. I mean, that's probably a red-letter day for me. I, you know, I haven't had too many days like that where I felt that good at, at that time. But really, that's not a good day. It's only a good day if I pleased God. See, a good day isn't measured by how I feel. Or maybe you're saying, oh, today was a good day because I went and ate my favorite food. And you were like, oh, man, I can't, can't wait to, to, to just go home and have the leftovers, the last little bit, the, the, the crumbles that they put into the, the, the styrofoam that I could take home, right? And you're thinking all that. And is that a good day? Well, it's a good day if you eat, yeah, but it's really only a good day if you please God. 
And so this idea is what Paul's trying to bring back. And you see how easy. We know that, right? We know that we're supposed to live in order to please God, right? Yet how many of you would say in the last five days, I'm not even going to give you a whole week, in the last five days, you've forgotten that at one day and you measured the goodness of a day by something other than that. How you feel. I, mean, I think it's easy for us to do that. We're easily lived out, we live out easily our feelings. And so uh, we need people to, we need each other to remind us of each other. You know, uh, the apostle says, encourage one another with these words. He's telling, uh, uh, he's loosing the church on the church to speak encouraging words and challenges and those kinds of things to, to bring uh, health and healing and, and a rebuke and even uh, reminders and uh, urgings to, to live in a way that will please God. Amen? So, okay, so, he, so that's the purpose of this. This is sort of a moral reawakening. He's, uh, he's repeating this so that they'll remember. He, they already know that. He calls them brothers. They're Christians. They're, there's no doubt about it. They're living. He says, you're already living this way, and yet I still want you to know this. This is what life is about. Life is about living to please God. Now, that's crucial for what he's going to say because what he's going to say only makes sense if we understand that that's what life is about. And then he says, these radical words, he tells us what God's will is. What's God's will? I want to know God's will. 95% of God's will is revealed already in the scripture. The other 5% you have to discern is subjective. You know, you have to kind of figure it out in that situation. But 95% of God's will is revealed for us here in the scripture. And he says, it is God's will that you should be sanctified. Sanctified is a very fancy, religious-sounding word for holy. That you should be holy. Holy is a very religious-sounding word that means to be separated from the world and to be separated for God, from the world and to, to God, right? And so... Um, you say, well, how does that work? Well, God calls us to himself, and then he saves us, and, and then this holiness that he begins to work on the inside of us separates us more and more towards him. The more we live for God, the more we understand him. Listen to what he says. It's God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his body in a way that is holy and honorable. There's a second mention of that word, sanctification. Then he uses the word holy. Then he uses the word honorable. And then he goes on to say, not impassionate lust like the heathen who do not know God, but in this matter, that no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish, all men, punish men for all such sins, as we have already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. So he begins by saying, it's God's will for you to be holy. Blah, 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 holy. Blah, 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 holy. Right? That's holy, holy, holy. Right? He's trying to say something to us. I think I perceive in my spirit, man, that God wants us to be holy and that sexual immorality is a threat to that holiness. Now that... Nothing could be further from the truth in our world. You know, we, we, in our world, 
that is just off the grid. We're not allowed to comment on that. We're not allowed to judge somebody else on that. We, in fact, we, we, we're not even supposed to do this. And many people will say, well, God is a you know, cosmic buzzkill because he doesn't want people to have fun because you know, sex is fun, and so he just doesn't want uh, humans to have fun. But in reality, God knows something that you don't know. Put your hand over your mouth in uh, home alone fashion. <gasps> yes. God knows something that you don't know, and he wants to reveal that to you. He understands that wrapped up in the whole sexual experience, even though we say it's just a hookup, even though we say it's just a friend with benefits, even though we say that there's no emotional attachments, that there really are emotional attachments that are formed. And there's hurts that, that come with rejection, and there, uh, there is a vulnerability that's displayed, and there's an acceptance that's hungered for, and there is a... a uh, in, internal mechanism that is clicked in when we begin to have sexual experiences with other people. Now, some of you going, hey, you know what? I'm married. I don't have sex. This doesn't have anything to do with me. <laughs> well, the reality of it is that this, this applies all across the board to who, whoever we are, whatever situation we find ourselves in life. This isn't a message for single people. This is a message for wherever we find ourselves because it's possible to violate the sexual mores of God, the ethics of God, sexually, even if we're married and we're living in covenant relationship with our spouse. It's possible to violate those things. Why? How could that possibly be done? We go back to the first verse we talked about. Living purpose is to please God. And so it's possible, now you'll understand, if you're married, you'll understand this. It's possible to live together, to be sexually active together, and yet to be doing all that you do in your life to please yourself, to live selfishly within the bounds of sexuality. And so there's boundaries that need to be uh, tamed here and things that we need to take a look at here. And so... We'll just look at these really, really quickly. Sexuality has a purpose beyond the momentary erotic pleasure of two people's arousal and release. Sexuality has this idea of connectedness and acceptance, disclosure and acceptance that takes longer than a moment, longer than a little bit of time. There's the revealing of self, and then there's the acceptance of that self, and then there's the further revelation of self, and there's the learning of each other, and the edification, the upbuilding that marriage should bring. We should be building each other up. If we're, living our, if we're, if we're married in order to please God, we should be building up our spouse. That's our purpose, is to be building up our spouse, not to get some. Right? It's about more than that. It's about building each other up. It's a commitment beyond the sexuality. It's a commitment into that. So the, he deals with this issue because, the, it, because the, the world was tainted back then in much the same way as it is now. Anything went in Thessalonica. Anything goes in Thessalonica in the first century. Same thing happens today. In the 19th century, 
None of you were alive then. In the 19th century, Sigmund Freud redefined what mankind is. He said, up until that time, people believed that man was a creation of God that was made in the image of God. That God created man in male and female and that, that they were created in that image and that that image, in some way, they sought to, to reflect back on their creator. Freud said that everything we do is based on the pursuit of pleasure and the, and the running away from pain. And there's some truth to that. We, don't, we run away from pain. If you run to pain, you probably have other issues. And if you, if you don't pursue your own pleasure at some point in your life, you're probably a little bit twisted too. But so Freud then began to interpret humanity and the ontological being of you and I, of human beings. In other words, ontological me meaning we are, we, are, we, are some, we are something. We have become something. And, we, and that something that we are, that being that we are, he boiled down to just these things. Pursuing pleasure and running away from pain. And so everything in your life then suddenly became... You became identifiable by the things that you pursued, the pleasure that you pursued. Fast forward now to the United States. Uh, a couple of years ago, the o o Obergfell case, where um, we have now created special laws for homosexuals to, to um, acknowledge their homosexuality based on what they pursue, what pleasure they pursue. So a whole group of people that are denied. So you're uh, homosexual or you're bisexual or you're heterosexual. Now, if you're, you're heterosexual male, you're heterosexual female. And so this, these pursuits now, we, we've divided humanity up into these many, many little pockets of, of people. And so this all triggers back to Sigmund Freud who was a pretty messed up dude to begin with, but he you know, tra tracks back to him so that we can track to what, the, what pleasure is a person pursuing. And then we identify the person by the pleasure that they pursue. So let's say, uh, let's say we go out and we all go to the old country buffet. I'm buying. Let's just say. And we, we all go. And we, and we get in line. And then uh, you all fill up your plates, and I walk around from table to table, and I go, oh, you like chicken. Your, 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 your pursuit is chicken tonight. You, I, you, said, you say, you stand up, and you sing the praises of chicken. You say, I feel like chicken tonight. I feel like chicken. Remember that commercial? I feel like chicken tonight, she says, and she dances a, a praise to the free chicken. Right? Identify her immediately, oh, she's a chicken eater. Right? Somebody else, brownies and ice cream. Somebody else's salad. There's always some salad eater, right? You know, right there? Rabbit food, right? You begin to identify people by the things that they pursue. But that's, but you're more than a chicken eater. You're more than a salad bar person. You are 
beyond that. You, there's more to you than just that thing. But to identify you just as that limits your understanding of who you are in the same way sexually that we, we limit this by this definition. And that's what Paul is recognizing within us. He said there's this sexuality and what we pursue can get in the way, but, but we have to make sure that we recognize that fundamentally we are human beings, and as human beings, our purpose is to please God. Well, if my purpose is to please God, but I want to eat chicken, then there's going to be a problem because it's going to come to a, a showdown. I'm doing my own sound effects tonight. It's a showdown between the will of God. It is God's will, right? You know what it says? It is God's will that you be sanctified. There he is, God standing on the dusty streets of Tombstone. An appropriate name of a town. Tombstone. He is there. He's got his Holy Ghost ray gun on the side of his hip. And he's walking down the street towards you. Here's you. You have things you want to do. They are your will. Right? You want to eat chicken. You want to have sex. You want to please yourself. It doesn't really make a difference what the sexuality that we're talking about. This has to do with every, every time our will comes in conflict with God. And we have to walk those dusty streets and determine who's going to die in this glorious town of Tombstone. Right? And there's no way that you can outdraw God. You have to die. Right? That's it. You've got to die. It's not what you want to do. No. You may feel like chicken tonight. But you've got to die your will. To live to please God, it's God's will that you be holy. It means then I have to put my whole sexuality in check and submit it to God. And when I do that, there's a rub there. I have to, I have to die to myself. We could wait for God to die to himself, but God doesn't die to himself. God only dies for you. God died on the cross so that you could have the strength to die to yourself and embrace the will of God. That's the whole purpose. And so if we think about it like this, we start to begin to see what Paul is saying. So the, the tragedy of this changing of hu human understanding into our pursuits and desires means we fail to see that the one thing that we are supposed to pursue, which is pleasing God. The word he uses here for sexual immorality is no help to us. It's the word porneia. We get our word pornography from it. But in reality, it's more than just pornography. It's more than fornication. Porneo is the, the Greek word that means fornication. 
it really, really we could summarize this, this word as sex outside of covenant. So every, got everything God uh, sends a blessing to, to that which with, is within covenant. So sex outside of covenant now, it, this, is a, this is something that, that is uh, revealed as something that needs to be avoided. Ultimately, that's the entire point. Now, you say, well, well then sex inside a covenant is, is blessed. So therefore, it's a blessing. But it's also an obligation. 1 Corinthians 7 says that you should not avoid having sex. You should have sex when you're married. Because your body is not your own. It's always quiet when you talk about sex. (laughs) 30-some years I've preached on sex frequently, and it's always deadly quiet. And so you you have the blessing. If you're within the covenant of marriage, you have the blessing of sex, but you also have the obligation. See, if... if, (laughs) Amen. (laughs) Always a man that amends that verse, too. Always a man that amends that verse. Lou, you want equal time? No, that's okay. Uh, so it's always, the idea here is that there's an obligation, and so there should be. So this is, if we're identified only by what we pursue, and, and you're a man and you're impotent, and you can no longer have sex, then you no longer pursue that, so now... Are you dead sexually? No. Are you, is it, are you unable to, to, or if you're a woman and you're going through menopause and you just have no desire, you have no desire like, yeah, I'm busy that day, you know, whatever. <laughs> if you're that, if you're, if you're a woman going through that, does that mean that there's, God has no use for you, there's no way for you, this is an obligation. This is a scriptural obligation. So it's possible to not have sex and be disobedient to God. What? Isn't this verse about people who have sex outside of covenant? Yes, but, it's, but if we look at the wholeness of it, it's also about people who are doing, doing it wrongly or not doing it wrongly. In other words, so the, sexua- so the sexuality that... Paul is challenging us to look at is our own sexuality. And am I doing it to please myself? Or am I doing it to please my spouse? Or am I doing it to please the Lord? Now, pleasing the Lord may please your spouse, and it may please you. But what's your ultimate, what's the ultimate drive on the inside of you? He says, each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen. Right now, somebody's thinking pastors like to talk about sex. I will tell you that's not true. It's not true. This is not something that we love to talk about. In fact, I would think that it probably needs to be talked about more because there's so much misunderstanding in our society about it. We sometimes think people 
See, the fundamental, I heard a, a, a great interview today on Focus on the Family. For once, I was thankful I was stuck in traffic. You know, when you stumble across one of those podcasts and you're like, thank God I'm not going anywhere. I get to hear the end of this. This interview with a lady named Rosaria Butterfield. And she, uh, a former college English professor who was in a lesbian relationship. And her neighbor was a pastor. Ken Smith was his name. I don't know where he's from, what town. Anyway, so Ken Smith, who she was singing the praises of, Ken Smith is, uh, begins to reach out to her. And she says, I thank God that with, she, and she hated the church and hated evangelicals specifically and, and didn't want anything to do with evangelicals. But she said, I thank God that he knew my biggest sin wasn't the lesbian relationship that I was in. My biggest sin was that I had no belief in Jesus. My biggest sin was unbelief. And so he didn't even tackle the little sin of my sexuality, but he tackled the bigger sin of my unbelief. And the reason he could do that with the confidence is because he too had been involved in that exact same sin at one time. He was unbelieving at one time. And he came across, and so if, if you have a friend who's involved in some kind of sexual uh, uh, deviancy, some kind of strange lifestyle, even as weirder than you could possibly imagine, then, then you don't tackle that. Tackle their unbelief. Because she said as soon as she began, to, and so she began to read the Bible so that she could write an article to tear down these pointy-headed evangelicals and as she began to read the Word of God, and she was loved by this guy and his wife, then suddenly she began to realize that she kind of believed in God. And as soon as she believed in God, then everything had to fall in place, and she had some explaining to do to God. She had, she had to learn to live in pursuit of God's kingdom. Now, of course, today she's... Uh, uh, written a couple of books. I actually ordered both books. I'm going to put them in the church library. They're, they're just, uh, she's just a very erudite, uh, good speaker, uh, anyway, so, but intelligent. But um, she's kind of discovered and, and unwrapped this whole idea of the sexuality is, is the reflection of the, the disbelief that we have in our heart. And so, so Paul is operating by that same, very same thought. He's saying... If you just live to please God, all this stuff will start falling to its right place. And all these things will start falling in. And so, you know, we're so busy trying to clean the fish before we catch the fish, right? Trying to scale the fish before we actually get it on the hook. What we need to do is love our neighbors and, and point them to Jesus and, and share the love of God. And not point out all the things that are wrong in their life, even the things that... You can have the argument about what's wrong in their life, but you may never win that argument. But when Jesus is the one they're arguing with, Jesus starts to win the arguments. Right? Isn't that how it happened for you? Right? I mean, I, I, was, I was not a virgin when I came to the Lord. And, and so I remember uh, I was seeing this girl. She was a lovely Christian girl. We, the two of us were together. We were started kissing the way you do, 
you know, and when you're dating and you're single. And so we started kissing, and I, it just, I had already been down the path so many times that sometimes when you go horseback riding, you, you go on those horses, they know the path so well that they just go down the path, right? I remember one time Stephanie's son Jay was with us, and we... We took, we took him out horseback riding, and I don't remember what the name of the horse he was on, but that horse was so used to dry, riding down the same path every day, multiple times a day. And then it got to be dark, and that, his horse just decided, I, he knew what happens. When it gets dark, they bring him back in, and then they feed him. And the horse was hungry, and he just turned around and started running. And Stephanie's son, had, he was 15 or so, had never been on a horse before, I mean, he was raised in the city, and he was scared out of his mind. And I was standing back at the barn, and I hear I see Jay coming, riding full bore, at, and the horse is running, and Jay is scared out of his mind. He's like, and I, he jumps off the horse, and I said, "Oh, hey, wait, let me turn him around. You can go, you can go back out and catch up with him." Oh no, I'm done. I'm done. That's it. You know, he was he was done. No more horseback. I don't, I don't think he's ever ridden a horse since then. I have to check with him about that next time I see him, but. The, 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 the funny thing is, that's the way we are. We, we have patterns that we've established in our sexuality, and then we come to the Lord. And then we start dating, and then we start going down the same patterns that we had when we, before we knew the Lord. And so I got to a certain place in the pattern, too far. How far, Pastor? Too far. Uh, and so I got too far into this, and suddenly the Lord was like, what are you doing? And I was like, oh, doing what comes natural, Lord. <laughs> but you're mine now. You're mine. And I was, and I was so convicted and, and conflicted. Convicted and conflicted. Both in that moment in time. Why? Because I want to please God with all my heart. And so the automatic pilot was taking me the same way it always took me, to the same landing strip it always took me to. And suddenly I realized that I could not do this because to do it would be to defraud my sister in Christ. Not just my girlfriend, but to defraud my sister in Christ. And that's what Paul says. He says you need to learn to control your body in a holy in an honorable way, not in passionate lust like the, the heathen. In other words, you need to differentiate yourself from the rest of the world in your sexuality by the way you handle, your, handle yourself sexually so that you don't look like the world around you because something else is driving you besides the pursuit of pleasure, besides the, uh, the, the seeking to, to release the animal lust within you. And so there's this hunger to please God has to, has to drive out the hunger to please self. And ultimately, it doesn't make any difference where you are on the sexual uh, 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 spectrum. That's where you have to get to that place where you say, I want my will to die. That's, and once you're, once you're en route, it's pretty hard to, to pull up and stop. And so, but I did, praise the Lord. And... She was like, what? What's, go what's going on? Because she was already going down the road too. And then I was like, no, God said no, you know. I don't know what I'm, I don't know what I'm doing. And I was like, you know, I got to get out of here, you know. And uh, 
And it spun her around. She didn't, she didn't know what that was about. And, she, and, and, then, and then there's the shame factor that we had both bought, walked down that road together. Two people who love God with all their heart and convinced each other, this is okay. We had to come back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and remind ourselves it is God's will that we be holy. We had to come back to this place and say, it is God's will that we be sanctified and that we handle ourselves in a way that's not like the passionate, lustful heathen. And he says here, um, the passionate, lustful heathen who do not know God. In other words, the knowledge of God is the difference between the way that we handle ourselves sexually and the way the world handles itself sexually. Even within the boundaries of marriage, so whether you're married or you're single or, or whatever, along the spectrum, you're, you're handling yourself in this way specifically so that you can honor God with your life. So I don't want to offend God with the way that I handle my life. God's power, this, the other thing this lady said today on this thing was that we only preach half the gospel. This is really powerful. We only preach the half of the gospel that says Jesus forgives. Right? But we don't preach the other half of the gospel that says God gives you grace so you can say no to temptation. Right? Now, I, I'm going to be 59 in a few weeks here. 59 years old. Wow, that's old. Yeah. And I will tell you, let me tell you, from this side, I will tell you, I'm 59 years old. I've been saved since I was 18 years old. Do the math. What's that? 41 years. 41 years. Still wrestle with my sexuality. Still wrestle with that. It's still, I think it's because it's a natural drive. I have a theory about natural drives. Natural drive to eat. You know, like you have these things that you have to do. You have to eat. Well, I got to eat. So you stop by the Old Country Buffet, and you eat for days, right? And finally they say, you get out of here, you know? So, so you, you overindulge in that. In the same way with sexual, you, sexuality is a normal, normal drive, but that, that normal sexual drive um, can lead you the wrong direction if it's not kept within the boundaries of, this, of the relationship that God has, this covenant boundary that he, he wants you to keep it in. So, this whole concept then brings us back to this idea that God can do more than forgive our sin, but he can give me the grace to operate rightfully within that, that area. The difference is the way that we know God. We know God. And so what I ended up with this, this gal recognizing the truth of this scripture. That if we don't hold our our sexual will in check, then what happens is we wrong our brother and take advantage of our brother. Well, why? Because we, if we have no intention to, to be together, then we're just selling them a bill of goods or we're reducing them to a pile of pleasure for ourselves, a thing that we could use. When in reality, God 
wants us to sanctify each other and make each other holy and to keep ourselves holy in such a way. It's a, it's a call to a holy life. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul writes this, Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Now what do you suppose that means? He says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Here are the same, same words, honor, honorable. He says, and he ties it to the Holy Spirit as well here, and the same thing is the same as he does in our, our verse that we're looking at. He says that sexual immorality is a, is a sin against your own flesh. You're sinning against your own, you're inviting the, the curse to come upon you. And so he warns against that. You know, he says here in this passage of scripture, we're looking at 1 Thessalonians, he says, the Lord will punish men for all these sins as we have already told you and warned you. Again, he says, we've already discussed this, but he continues to discuss it, right? So it's like my wife says, I know you were listening when I told you last time, but you need to take out the garbage. Did she really believe that I was listening the last time? I don't know. I don't think so. She wants to make sure the job gets done. God did not call us to be impure, he says, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God. Again, he assigns it to the holiness of life. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul says this, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Again, he says in 1 Timothy, something's very similar. Be diligent in these matters and give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So he's saying, he says now, he says, this, I don't want to lose out with God, so I keep my own will in subjection, and I have to physically beat my body down in order to maintain, keep my... Now, this is a picture of somebody who's trying to keep themselves under control so that they live their life so they can please God. That's completely the opposite of the picture that the world gives us of sexuality. The world tells us that, if you, that it's unthinkable. That you, wouldn't, that you would remain a virgin. They were, they're absolutely certain that if you're not married and you're not having sex, that at some point there'll be an explosion and you will be gone off the face of the earth. You will just exploit, explode in some sort of erotic hot mess there on the sidewalk as you're walking, you know, all sexually pent up, you know. You'll just explode because you can't possibly retain yourself. That, by the way, has never happened in the history of humanity. No one has ever exploded walking down the street. You won't explode if you're not sexually active. You can be not sexually active and still be whole. <clears throat> now, you can't, you can't be not sexually active and watch whatever you want to watch on TV and listen to whatever you want to listen to on the radio because 
that's all they sing about and all they talk about. Right? So it's just stirring up. It's like you're saying, I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to go to the strip bar. Well, you know, I don't know. It's been, you know, a bunch of time, been a bunch of, you know, decades since I've been to a strip bar. But you may say you're not going to do anything, but there are things in the atmosphere there that make you want to do stuff. You know, it's like, I'm not going to eat, I just want to walk through the buffet and smell. Well, you're going to come out with a plate of food. Because you're enticing the natural uh, appetites of the human sexuality. So, he says, he, he concludes this by saying, Whoever rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God who gives you his Holy Spirit. And my question that I was asking myself in this time, oh man, we're running out of time. Uh, I was asking myself, is, he kind of, is this a vague threat? Is this either Paul saying, you know, if you reject this, you're not rejecting just my teaching, you're rejecting God who gives you his Holy Spirit, who you desperately need in order to live a holy life. I mean, the only way, Ben, the only way you're going to live a holy life is if you have a Holy Spirit on you. Right? Peg, same for you. The only way you're going to live a holy life is if the Holy Spirit is on you. So how can I live a holy life and please God? Or am I going to doom myself to not having the Holy Spirit on my life? Or to be offending or grieving the Holy Spirit and holding the Spirit at bay by the, my, the way I choose my lifestyle in such a way? And then come to church and go through the machinations of worship and all that stuff and ask God, please bless my life. Lord, please reach out and, and help me in my time of mercy. Please answer my prayer. And I'm knocking on heaven's door, but there's no answer coming back because I'm stiff-arming the Holy Spirit. And that's what it seems to be saying. That's what the implication seems to be here, is that, that we as Christians have to, have to comport ourselves in a way that we... we, we represent Christ even in the bedroom even with your clothes off even when you're naked as a jaybird God wants you to comport yourself in a way that doesn't reject the Holy Spirit now I have friends of mine who are really good godly Christians and they told me that every uh, time that they go into the bedroom uh, that they pray in tongues at the end of the bed together for a half an hour before they have sex. If I pray for half an hour before I have sex, I'm not having sex. You know, come on now, let's be realistic. Now, they told me this when they were in their 30s, so maybe that, I mean, if I'm going to pray for 30 minutes, I'm, now I'm thinking about Jesus, you know. You know, I went from wow, 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 wow to, you know, Lift your hands up and praise Him. Let's just praise the Lord. I, I, those, my, those two worlds don't ever collide for me. You know? Sometimes I might you know, look at my wife and say, I thank God for you. Now take that thing off. I might say that. I mean, that's right. I might say that. But that's, for the most part, that's, that's about as close as my praise 
ever gets to my sexuality. Maybe I'm warped. I don't know. I only know that way. I just, I, I'm sure there's people who are better at this whole godly sex thing than me. My wife's going to kill me. It occurs to me that my wife is going to kill me. <laughs> Maybe I just won't go home tonight. She'll be worried about me, and the worry will overrule that. If you reject this word, he says, you're rejecting the Holy Spirit. God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. You've got to keep your body in a way that honors God. It says down here, Q&A. Do you want to ask questions about any of this? Thank you, Jesus, for that little favor. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. There's always one. Right, that's the way, it, that's what happens. You have to monitor your behavior in increments that happen before the behavior, right? So you, you, have to, and you have to change the, you know, how, it's the same as a diet. You change the way you think about it, right? Before you were on the diet, you were like, yeah, I want to get me some, you know, whatever, three slabs of ribs or whatever, you know, which sounds great right now. But now, then you think, well, I can eat that, but I can only eat a certain portion of that if I'm going to be on a diet. You, the diet changed the way you think. So long before you put yourself in that position, you've already rethought that, that position. Now, that's the same thing that happens in this. God reorients. And the longer you walk with the Lord, the more he begins to put you in check about these things that are internal in the way that you think. Isn't it? And it's, and it's like, come on, Lord, get out of my business. And he says, whose business? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. You're mine, buddy. You're mine. So you're my property. So I need you to start acting like you're my property. I wonder what the Thessalonians, how they received this. I think they, now you know their epistles were written so that they could be read out loud, right? Some guy got up and started reading at chapter 1, verse 1, and read along here through chapter 4, and got to this part, and somebody raised their hand in the back of the thing and said, Pastor, can we just pray? And I think that's what we should do right now. Father, we pray. We bring ourselves, our lives, our hearts, and our souls to you, Lord. We pray that we would live our lives. Thanks for listening to today's message. We hope you were blessed by it. If there's anything that we can do to help you further your relationship with God, we would love to be a part of it. You can contact us through our website, www.berwinag.org. Thank you, and God bless.